You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A federal appeals court has saved Citigroup from an epic mistake that became the talk of Wall Street. Citibank mistakenly wired nearly a billion dollars of its own money. The district court said it couldn't get that money back. Attorney Neil Katyal argued the case for a city that led to the Second Circuit reversing a trial judge's decision and ruling instead that Revlon's creditors could not keep the more than half a billion dollars the bank sent them by accident. Joining me is Professor Eric Talley of Columbia Law School. Eric, you compared this appellate process to an episode of The Twilight Zone. Tell us why. Well, one of the things that was difficult, especially after the trial court's opinion, was that we knew that this issue was being appealed to the Second Circuit. And we didn't know what the Second Circuit was going to do with it, whether they were going to affirm it, whether they were going to reverse it, whether they were going to contract out the job to the New York court system, which they might have done. And in the interim, what happened is that Revlon filed for bankruptcy. Well, bankruptcy is a process that requires absolute clarity about who is owed what. And here we were in the middle of not knowing who, if anyone, was owed this money by Revlon or by Citibank. And the bankruptcy process was going forward without having any resolution from the Second Circuit. So that's why it was a little bit in the twilight zone, because there was just kind of a surprising and almost disabling amount of uncertainty having to do with what was the status of this mistaken payment, whether Citibank could claw it back, whether Citibank became a lender. Since they paid off the other lenders, they get to step in their shoes, or whether the debt of Revlon just mysteriously disappeared. And every one of those things was a possible outcome And we sat waiting for a year to figure out how the Second Circuit was going to rule on this. And so all of this bankruptcy planning essentially had to be done kind of in the shadow of, you know, the northern lights without (laughs) really understanding exactly, you know, where the light was coming from and where the shadows were being cast. So for those who may not have heard about this half a billion dollar mistake, just tell us what happened here. 
Yeah, so this actually was all born around a 2016 very large loan that Revlon took out that was financed by a big consortium of lenders. And Revlon borrowed this money so that they could buy Elizabeth Arden, which is you know a well-known cosmetics company. And they eventually did buy Elizabeth Arden and then took on this big set of loan obligations. Well, in the ensuing years, Revlon was already starting to come up with problems on you know how they could finance themselves. You know, COVID hit and they had all kinds of difficulties. So they tried a few ways of restructuring their loans, ways that caused the lenders to say, hey, wait, you can't do that. That's not an appropriate way to restructure your loans. You're breaching your contract. And it got very, very heated. So heated, in fact, that the lenders were literally just about to sue Revlon saying, we want all of our money back. And quite literally, the night before they filed their lawsuit, they checked their bank accounts and suddenly, mysteriously, and not announced by anyone, the exact dollar amount that they were owed got popped into their bank account. And it was because of a huge mistake, a billion-dollar mistake that Citibank made. Citibank wasn't the borrower, but they were the administrative agent that was handling this loan on behalf of Revlon. And due to kind of a series of technical glitches and, and hapless mistakes, Citibank pressed the wrong button and paid off all of these folks who really, you know, must have thought that this was like hitting the Powerball lottery because <laughs> that was exactly what they wanted in the lawsuit that they now no longer had to file. Well, within hours, Citibank realized that they had screwed up. They didn't even have Revlon's money to pay this out. It came out of their own coffers. And they contacted these lenders, urgently pressing them to return the nearly $1 billion payment. About half of them did, but about $500 million worth of the borrowers said, nah, you want this money back? You can sue us. And that's exactly what Citibank did. So this all started in this kind of interesting melodrama about Revlon aggressively restructuring, getting these lenders upset. They somehow magically had this money in their hands that a lot of people thought there must be some weird mistake here, but they didn't want to give it back. And when this went to trial at the trial court level in early 2021, a federal judge here in New York said, you know what, I'm going to apply a very murky and not well understood doctrine from New York that's essentially a finder's keepers rule that says in some circumstances, a person that gets a mistaken payment like this gets to keep it and I'm going to allow the lenders to keep it. And so that in February 2021 sort of, you know, hit the news wires and it was pretty big news. It surprised me as well because I had uh, been kind of keeping up on this story. And most of the time when you mistakenly give someone a benefit, you usually have the ability to claw it back in court. And so this would be one of these weird exceptions. And the judge in this case thought that this 30-year-old precedent that kind of set this potential very limited path in motion applied to these facts as well. So was the Second Circuit's decision reversing that opinion not a surprise? I think it depends whom you ask. To me, it was not surprising on the overall merits of the case itself. It seems highly implausible that someone that you're about to sue will suddenly, without trying to get a settlement agreement with you or a standstill agreement, suddenly just pay off the money. It just kind of taxes one's common sense to think that that would even be possible. And that's important because this limited finder's keeper's doctrine requires as an absolute necessity that the person that gets the mistaken payment 
doesn't know or doesn't even have reason to know that it's a mistake. And that just didn't seem likely here. These lenders knew that Revlon probably was going to pay them back in full. The last thing Revlon wanted to do is pay them back in full. If Revlon wanted to get rid of their loans, Revlon could have gone out into the secondary market and bought them up at pennies on the dollar. So it was a odd way and a completely irrational way to pay off the loans. And the Second Circuit, when it finally hit that, it said, yeah, that, that's right. No reasonable person would think that this unannounced payoff of the loans was absolutely part of the plan. At the very least, they should have gotten on the phone and called Revlon and called Citibank and said, hey, what's up with this, guys? Have you made a mistake or not? They didn't do it. They basically you know, cupped their hands over their ears and hoped that that would be enough to keep the money. So the main reason that the court kicked this back was because of that, because the lenders, even if they didn't actually know it was a mistake, there were enough red flags there to suggest that it was a mistake. On the other hand, there is a sense in which this was a surprise, in large part because the, the Second Circuit, the federal court of appeal that had it, held on to it for a year after argument. And a lot of people sort of thought, well, look, if they're going to uh, you know, make a decision on this, let's get rolling on it. And nothing happened and nothing happened. And another option might have been that the Second Circuit just thought, oh, gosh, you know, we're trying to interpret New York state law. We're a federal court. New York has its own, you know, highest court of appeals. Maybe we should just ask them what would they do in this circumstance. And it doesn't happen all the time, but it's something known as certifying an issue to a state court. And a lot of people thought that might not be what happened. And, and in fact, I, I figured that was the odds-on favorite. The longer the time went on, however, the more mysterious it was as to what was going on, because certifying something to the New York Court of Appeals, you know, it takes a page and a half to do it, and then it's <laughs> off of your desk. And so why would it take a year to do this? And I think part of it was that there was genuine debate going on inside this three-judge panel about how to deal with this case and whether there was enough law on the books to answer this question using New York law, or they had to, you know, seek the Delphic Oracle of the of the highest court of New York to, to tell them more. And eventually, the panel unanimously came to the conclusion that they could answer the question, that the trial court judge did get it wrong, and therefore Citibank gets this money back. But it took a year, which was an extraordinary amount of time. And in fact, the judge that wrote the opinion, Judge Laval, very well-respected judge who probably knows more contracts than just about anyone I know. You know, he even put a, a fairly remarkable statement at the end saying, I apologize that it took this long, but we were really trying to grapple with whether we could answer this question or not. And so uh, one gathers that there was a relatively healthy discussion, if not debate, amongst the three judges on this panel about what to do. Yeah. So the opinions opened a little bit of a window on their disagreements. Judge Michael Park wrote, this is a straightforward case that many smart people have grossly overcomplicated and we should have decided many months ago. And then Judge Laval, as you mentioned, wrote, I take sole responsibility for that. It's remarkable to see that. It really is remarkable. And I think that, again, kind of in the spirit of overly smart people trying to Monday morning quarterback, <laughs> it can also be true of opinions. You know, it may well be the case that you should just take Judge Laval at his word, that he and Judge Sack, you know, he wrote in the opinion, we thought maybe this is something that we should certify. 
Judge Park, you know, came back with a fairly full-throated opinion that I'm guessing had been, you know, maybe a draft dissent opinion that then turned into a concurrence because he brought them along with his position and said, you know, we are making this harder than it needs to be. I just can't see any reason why anyone would think that this would be a deliberate payoff. And if you want more proof from that, there's been a huge market response to the trial court opinion. And he you know, talked about actually some research that I did on this that found that after the trial court opinion came out, uh, people that were writing these corporate debt contracts specifically and overwhelmingly put in new language to say, hey, that, that Citibank opinion, that doesn't apply to this contract. So there was almost a kind of a voting by their feet effect in which the people that were drafting these contracts really you know, pretty much rushed the gates to contract out of the trial court's holding. And, and so the combination of those things, I think, made Judge Park feel like this was a pretty easy call. And this may just be you know, Judge Park being very persistent in that view and ultimately persuasive in that view and bringing around Judge Laval and Judge Sachs. And, and in fact, that's why we have three-judge panels, right? It's the idea of deliberation between judges, even if it takes a while. And Judge Laval writes this in his opinion as well, right? That maybe getting this right is better than getting it done in two weeks. And there's some truth to that. I guess that you know, excessive delay can be problematic as well. And certainly people felt that in the Revlon bankruptcy. But you know, ultimately, I think they ended up getting to the right place. And if it took a little bit of introspection and some internal debate, well, that's what this system is built to to do. So that 1991 New York court ruling that creditors can keep money sent to them in error if they didn't realize the transfer was an accident, does that still stand? It still stands. They didn't overrule the opinion, but what they did do is they limited the situations in which it would apply. The way that the trial court had applied that opinion, you know, basically gave it a much broader scope of situations where it might apply in. But what the judges here did is they dialed it back in two important respects. The first one is to really reaffirm this idea that given all the facts, if you are on constructive notice that there might be a mistake here. You don't get this special finders keepers rule going in your favor. And then the second thing that they did, which was a little bit more of a technicality, is that in that 1991 case, the loan that was at issue it actually had to be paid off when it was paid off. It was due and payable at the very moment the mistake was made. And so there was a kind of a sense in which the lenders in that case, they said, well, yeah, we were expecting it at this moment in time because this was the date that the loan was due and we had said we're not going to extend the loan. In this case, the, the loan that got paid off wasn't due for three more years. There was an option to pay it off early, but it wasn't required to be paid off for three more years. It wasn't yet due and payable. And so the other way that the court limited that 1991 holding is to sort of clarify that if you're going to use that holding, it has to be in a context like the 1991 case was, where the loan in question was in fact payable when the mistake got made. Is there a chance that this might be appealed to the Supreme Court? Well, there's a chance, but realize this ultimately is an issue of the law of the state of New York. And so the Supreme Court isn't going to have any special um, expertise in interpreting New York law. In fact, on some level, they may have less expertise than the Second Circuit, which actually sits here in New York and they hobnob with the judges in New York all mm-hmm. the time. And so there's not a constitutional or a federal statute that really is, is going to play a big role that would give the Supreme Court the type of jurisdiction to bring federal law into the case. Now, they could 
take the case. I think if it gets appealed, it's more likely to be appealed to the entire Second Circuit, what's known as an en banc review, to revisit the holding. I don't think that's even going to happen, however, because uh, the fact of the matter is the Second Circuit's a large circuit, but by uh, you know luck of a draw, they got Pierre Laval as the person that, that, that wrote the opinion. And, you know, I, I'm teaching contracts right now. Opinions by Judge Laval basically litter the field of contracts. <laughs> He's a really, really prominent jurist in this field. And so I would expect that even with an on, in an en banc panel setting, if uh, Judge Laval has been brought you know, on board on this side, and you have every reason to think that he, he has finally in this case, it would be an uphill battle to to move to the to the on to an on banc review as well. Though it, you know it, it might be worth a shot. It's not overly expensive to do it. So I could you know potentially see the the lenders you know at least mulling over whether they want to take that uh, take that shot. There are a couple of other kind of sideline issues about whether um, whether the lenders could have a cause of action against Citibank. Because when Citibank did that, then they threw the, you know, Revlon's ability to borrow money and in bankruptcy into flux because no one knew where any of the assets or liabilities were, and that caused Revlon's bankruptcy to get even worse, which made things even worse for the lenders. There are some, you know, I think somewhat speculative theories. Uh, they're they're sort of haymakers that that the lenders might try to come back with that are totally different lawsuits, not appealing this one as well. I would not handicap those types of claims to have um, high likelihood of prevailing, but uh, that doesn't mean that they're not necessarily worth you know filing and, and trying to explore. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Eric. That's Professor Eric Talley of Columbia Law School. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. In a time when our nation is mired in political discord, the temporary leader of the Justice Department's largest litigating division is outlasting his expected tenure without becoming a target of the left or right, even while facing off against red states over abortion, guns and immigration. Brian Boynton is technically a political appointee who's been in charge of DOJ's civil division since President Joe Biden's inauguration, leading a team of more than a thousand lawyers. Joining me is Ben Penn, Justice Department reporter for Bloomberg Law. Start by telling us about Brian Boynton. Who is he? Brian Boynton is the temporary head of the Justice Department Civil Division. And uh, he was never intended to remain this long as the uh, top political appointee over the division that uh, represents the federal government in court. But the Biden administration's first nominee withdrew unexpectedly last year, last July, and they have not advanced another nominee to replace him. And that's left Boynton as the uh, top man at the uh, largest litigating division of the Department of Justice for about 19 months now. So in this time of great political divisions in this country, how has he managed to lead this division without becoming a target of the left or the right? He has really managed as an institutionalist caretaker of the civil division, not a crusader for policy change, not somebody who is uh, looking to achieve outcomes via his litigation decisions. And he's also just a low-profile person, is known as somebody who has a really calming presence and not somebody who seeks out the spotlight, not somebody who tries to uh, make a name for himself with flashy litigation. He's just a lawyer's lawyer, a constitutional First Amendment specialist. So I think um, that he's been able to get a lot of respect internally and throughout other federal agencies in the White House for his ability to make these really tough decisions, threading the needle between, you know, things like, you know, really tough decisions on executive power while also trying to maintain the Justice Department's reputation before judges. And all this time, I think, you know, a lot of his actions wind up getting criticized by people on the left and the right, but they'll associate it with the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, for instance, some on the left saying he's he's been too soft on uh, Trump. And, you know, other people like Benita Gupta, the associate attorney general who oversees Boynton and the civil division, is often a subject from the right, you know, who gets accused of being somewhat of an ideologue. And and Boynton winds up, uh, you know, missing out on a lot of that scrutiny. I know one case that angered a lot of liberals was when he decided to defend former President Trump in a defamation suit brought by the New York columnist E. Jean Carroll, accusing him of defamation about whether she was raped or not. And that got a lot of criticism. That's right. That was 
a decision that, now to be fair, for really uh, you know politically charged decisions like that, there's a very good chance that Boyden isn't going to be the ultimate decider. That you know people above him in the attorney general's office and the deputy attorney general's office are going to be weighing in and 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 making the call on how to proceed. But you know Boyden, as the head of the division that is and as the first signature on the uh, government's filings in, in in that case, is the one who is is partially at least responsible for the decision to continue the prior administration's defense of Trump in that uh, defamation lawsuit. And, you know, if you look at the pleading, I think it really speaks to how Boyden tries really hard to strike a balance because, you know, he goes out of his way in it to say at the very beginning that the uh, former president's comments directed at Gene Carroll were inappropriate and crude, and yet that's not the basis for why they are continuing to defend him. There were positions that the right disagrees with, much as the left disagreed with the E. Gene Carroll position. Tell us about the January 6th committee. Sure. Well, you know, the Department of Justice, the Civil Division, was asked by a judge to uh, uh, determine whether they wanted to intervene on behalf of Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama, who was sued by Congressman Eric Swalwell um, for his speech before the January 6th mob. And Boynton decided, and Civil Division decided, not to uh, represent Brooks. And they argued that his speech was on, he was acting in his personal capacity, not as a politician. And therefore, he wasn't owed uh, the protection of the government. Then, in a uh, somewhat related matter, he also argued that the January 6th committee was entitled to document from the National Archive, which uh, was something that the former president had tried to argue uh, they were not entitled to. And Boynton made the argument that the current president's opinion outweighed the former president. What is his management style? Is he hands-on? I'm told he really, he's going to be hands-on when certain really high-profile decisions get escalated up to the front office of the civil division. But at the same time, he shows a lot of deference to the opinions and expertise of the career, largely career uh, workforce that reports up. And, uh, he, you know, he's not going to be somebody who is, you know, going to allow any sense of partisan politics get involved in the legal focus of the lawyers below him in uh, deciding how to represent the government in court. Since he's been so successful in this position, why isn't he being put forth as the permanent leader of the civil division? Well, you know, that's a question I tried to ask the Justice Department, and they're, you know, not commenting on, they almost never comment on personnel decisions like that. But, you know, it's worth noting that there's a long history, or at least in recent history, of there being acting temporary officials atop the civil division without an administration for both parties prioritizing the need to get somebody Senate confirmed. You know, in this case, there's a sort of conventional wisdom among people I talk to for this story that, you know, 
if it's not broke, don't fix it. Uh-huh. Like right now, right now he's doing a perfectly fine job as acting. If they were to nominate him, they would likely need to move him to a different role or ask him to leave the department altogether to avoid any complications in his Senate confirmation process. And that could take a long time. At this point in the calendar year, this close to uh, the midterms, there really isn't going to be much time for any nominees to get advanced, especially any nominees outside of uh, judicial nominees who have been by far the greatest priority of this administration. So that means that there's really just little political motivation right now for them to try to um, move Boynton or anyone else for that matter as the uh, Senate confirmed leader of the agency. It's also worth considering that, you know, quite a bit of the work is going to be defensive, not, you know, proactive litigating. And that means that whoever's in charge of the agency is just doing so many of the litigating decisions they have to make regardless of who's in control. So, so much of the functions of the civil division are going to continue regardless of who's in charge, whether that person has a uh, Senate confirmation before their name. And so if the House is taken over by Republicans, then the job of the civil litigation will crank up, I guess, as far as, you know, defending against subpoenas, et cetera. Yeah, that's right. Um, If uh, the president or any uh, members of uh, his executive branch are going to be uh, subpoenaed to appear before Congress, that's something that uh, Boynton's civil division will be responsible for defending those officials against those subpoenas. That's only going to make the job, uh, you know, even weightier. You've done a story about how the Justice Department is becoming more aggressive in targeting companies that have fraudulently billed government agencies. Yeah. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, so the Justice Department in this administration has increased the number of cases, according to a number of attorneys who defend companies from False Claims Act charges, they are noticing a significant uptick in the department's enforcement of that law. And, you know, it's really a bipartisan law, and many of its uh, aspects get enforced consistently from administration to administration. But you're starting to see some changes, some of which are just a natural byproduct of how the department's trial attorneys are evolving in their sophistication, in their use of data analytics to uh, look at numbers, look at Medicare billing numbers, and search for anomalies, you know, instances in which maybe healthcare providers are possibly uh, defrauding the government, and uh, in which case need to be uh, targeted for an investigation and potential lawsuits. That's just an example of how the civil division is starting to, you know, they largely do rely on whistleblower complaints filed by outside plaintiff attorneys, and then they look at their complaints and determine whether um, the government wants to intervene on behalf of the uh, plaintiff. But, you know, when I talk to numerous attorneys who represent companies on, under the False Claims Act, and they're just noticing a real um, more concerted focus from the department and getting more aggressive. Usually the suit is already ongoing. A private attorney is representing a whistleblower, and then the government intervenes. Those are the usual cases? Yeah, or the government decides that they won't intervene, but they will. Uh, that will allow the uh, whistleblower case to continue, and the government still gets to recoup a share of any recovered funds as 
a result of uh, that trial or, or that settlement. It used to be concentrated in a few districts like Philadelphia and Massachusetts. Why and why is it expanding? A couple of factors at play. I'm told that part of it is just success to get success. So as you're seeing, you know, more U.S. attorneys' offices across the country decide little by little, hey, let's see if we can bring more false claims at cases, and those are leading to um, substantial recovery, and they're saying, hey, let's try it more often. Let's increase the caseload for our attorneys. And then other U.S. attorneys' offices are noticing as well. Then you also just have the fact that since the majority of false claims act enforcement recovery comes from the healthcare sector and you have, you know, pharmaceutical hubs of uh, Philadelphia and Massachusetts, it just makes more sense for there to be a concentration of cases in those areas. But uh, increasingly, you're seeing the department expanding its enforcement reach geographically. It's sort of easy to quantify the success of these because you have numbers. DOJ did announce earlier this year that they had uh, collected $5.6 billion in fiscal 2021 in uh, False Claims Act uh, resolution. That said, about half of that, $2.8 billion, came from a, from a single case in that Purdue Pharma settlement. So the department boasted $5.6 billion, which they said you know, is the second largest ever annual amount under the False Claims Act. But in reality, the numbers are a little misleading. You know, It can take more than a year for the department just to make its initial determination on whether to intervene. And the case is on hold until that time. And then from there, you know, you know how litigation can just wend its way through the courts or more frequently settlement negotiations can just be drawn out and stall and go through multiple phases. So we may see a lot of these cases not wind up getting resolved until maybe a new president is in office. Thanks, Ben. That's Ben Penn of Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.